Good morning, church. How you guys doing? Good. As you can see, I'm nothing if not consistent. Coffee. I know what you're thinking. Pastor, two weeks in a row? Well, what happened was uh, apparently no one liked last week, so they were like, all right, John, you get a second try. If it bombs again, well, we do have a personnel committee that will be talking with you. So uh, if, if you love me, let Scott know, please. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's my, it's my pleasure and, and honor to get to uh, talk to you guys this morning. And uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Judges chapter 14. Uh, but I will tell you it's going to be five or six minutes before we read it. So, uh, but I just want you to be ready. You know. There's uh, two things that um, during worship God laid on my heart to share that's not part of the sermon. Uh, so they're free. Um, everything else you have to pay for. Uh, so the, uh, the, the two things that I wanted to share. Uh, first is, if, if you've noticed, um, uh, I'm always wearing this leather bracelet. And uh, it is fashionable, yes. Um, but it's, it's also got a phrase carved into it. It was a gift from my wife because she knows how much this phrase and the passage it represents means to me. And the, the, the scripture that it comes from is in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. You guys might remember if you were here in December, the very first thing I ever spoke on was the indwelling Christ and how Paul was a Christ-intoxicated man. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, of the many different ways he introduces himself in the letters that he writes, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ. Uh, in, in, in the New American Standard Bible, which I joke is my heart language, um, it, uh, it says bond servant, which is a fine translation, but it means slave. And the way that we know that it means slave is because the word used in the Greek is doulos. And doulos, it doesn't just mean servant. As a matter of fact, doulos is such a strong word for someone who is in service to someone else that it requires another word to go with it, kurios, which means master. There's four other Greek words that are used for servant in the New Testament, but by and large, the one that is used the most often, over a hundred times, is doulos, which is the one that's in Romans. And it's the strongest of them all, and it means slave. And so uh, this bracelet uh, carved into it is doulos Christu Jesu, slave of Christ Jesus. So when I, when I come up here this morning, one of the things I want to remind you is, in America, we sure love our freedom. But we are slaves of Christ. We were bought with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, the sinless Savior who died for us. We were purchased. The, the odd thing that the world will never understand and we can't comprehend without the assistance of the Holy Spirit is that by being a slave to Christ, we're the most free we could ever be. Because I'm going to tell you one thing, you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. One of those is a good master. One of those is not. And the other thing that I, uh, I wanted to share with you this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16. How many of you know that uh, bad news makes great headlines? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 2020 taught me that. Clear as day. Um, 
And, and so uh, it, it's easy if we're not being reminded of and it's not being thrown in our face constantly what God is doing around the world. I just want to share with you uh, a snippet of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. To set the scene, this is right after uh, Matthew asked the disciples, what do people say that I am? And they said, some say you're uh, Elijah, reborn. Some say you're John the Baptist, which was odd because they both lived momentarily at the same time. Some say you're a prophet. Okay, well, okay, Jesus. So um, uh, Jesus asked, what do you say that I am? Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter, uh, uh, he puts his foot in his mouth several times. He says the wrong thing several times. Uh, when Jesus is being captured in the garden to be taken to the cross to be crucified, Peter tries to fight the guards off, lobs off an ear. But in this moment, Peter got it right. He said, you're the son of the living God, the Savior, the Messiah. What does Jesus say? You're right. And then he tells him, don't tell anyone. Immediately after that, by the way, Peter told a lot of people. Um, <laughs> immediately after that, they're in Caesarea Philippi. This is all in Matthew 16. They're in Caesarea Philippi. How many of you have ever been to Caesarea Philippi in Israel? Okay. Uh, you might have heard this, depending on whether you were uh, in a tour and they shared this little tidbit of information. Um, but there is a place in Caesarea Philippi, it's a cave set into the side of a hill. And inside this cave, there is a massive fissure in the ground, a chasm leading down into an underground aquifer. And in biblical times, people would make sacrifices to the pagan god Pan at this cave. They would take babies up there that were living and toss them into this pit in the ground to drown as they made sacrifices to this pagan god. Interesting tidbit about that cave. Do you know what it was known as by those people at that time? The, the little term they had for it? The gates of hell. The gates of hell. Because it was a focal point for uh, pagan religion, for all that is evil in the world, the power of Satan. And in Caesarea Philippi, right after Jesus talks with the disciples, what does he say to Peter, who just got it right? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I believe, he, since he was in Caesarea Philippi, and there's a literal place called the gates of hell there, it kind of makes sense to me that he had a flair for the dramatic on this rock, this revelation of who I am, Peter, I will build my church. He points at that cave and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now when I read that as a kid, I always read that as a, a defensive posture, that the church was going to be able to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. Friends, it's the exact opposite. What Jesus is saying is that the, the, the church, the kingdom of God is going to expand. It is going to spread all over the world like a wildfire. God's purposes will be done and hell will not be able to withstand it. They will be pushed back. They will be knocked down. They will be driven back and Christ will be victorious. Amen. Amen. We're not on the defensive, guys. There's a passage in Isaiah. I love it. It says, 
when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner against it. Now, you know what, what's really interesting? Punctuation didn't exist in ancient biblical Hebrew. So the commas you see in that sentence were put in there by well-meaning scholars. For a long time, I, I purported that they got it wrong. And what's funny is uh, I've actually noticed some translations have, have moved the comma in that sentence uh, since then. Um, not that I think that high school John uh, managed to, to get that done, um, but it felt good to me when, when some actual scholars uh, uh, made this change. The, the comma used to be, when the enemy comes in like a flood, comma, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner against it. You know, what's interesting, though, is water is never used to describe the enemy. It's never used to describe the power of Satan. So why would he say when the enemy comes in like a flood? No. A lot of translations now, when the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner. He's saying that the spirit of the Lord is an oppressive flood that cannot be stopped, a tsunami that, that, that cannot be resisted by the church of Satan, that cannot be resisted by the gates of hell. We, we don't cower in fear behind this oncoming onslaught of the enemy. No, the, the Lord himself goes before us, raising up a standard in our defense in an onslaught against the encroaching gates of hell, destroying them and tearing them down. Anyway, <laughs> uh, like I said, that was free, um, and uh, uh, you can uh, make your donations payable to Jim Pulling, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be in uh, Judges 14, and if you did turn there earlier, uh, then, then you are now acutely aware that I'm here to talk to you this morning about Samson. Samson was a man of extremes. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about his extreme devotion to God and also to fleshly desire. He was a, a broken individual. And the story of, of Samson is a reminder to, to each of us that, that God can use us. That no matter what we do, no matter what mistakes we make, we are never so far gone that the purposes of God can be stopped by us. We are powerless to stop them. If the enemy can't do it, we certainly can't do it. So we're going we're gonna to read, hold your breath here, two whole chapters of the Bible, back to back. If you can't sit uh, long enough to, to read 40 verses with me, I apologize. Feel free to take a nap. Um, but I would encourage you, uh, you know, Scripture is kind of important. So we're just going to read chapter 14 and chapter 15. We're not going to read chapter 16. I'll save that for later. But we're going to read two chapters. All right, buckle in. Here we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Parents didn't really like that. Uh, however, <laughs> his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. He was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And now at that time, the Philistines were ruling 
over Israel. Um, and then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Remember that. So that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. I'm going to pause real quick. Has anyone in here ever torn apart a young goat? Why does this say that like that's normal? <laughs> he tore apart a young lion as one tears apart a goat. Was that just like a pastime? I, I, I don't know. Because um, <laughs> I imagine tearing apart a young goat with your bare hands also isn't easy. Um, but, you know, Samson. So, <laughs> verse 7. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. And when he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Gross. So he scraped the honey into his hands, even grosser, and went on eating it as he went, the grossest. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Samson, he played too much. <laughs> like, that's not okay. Anyway, um, verse 10, then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. And when they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. I'm going to pause for a brief moment. That doesn't seem like a great gift. Back then, it was a very honorable gift. To have extra clothing, a whole set of clothings, was an honor. It was a, a mark of dignity and, and authority. Verse 13, but if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. And so he said to them, out of the eater came something to, sweet, something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. That's a bit of an overreaction. Um, Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. So should I tell you? I imagine that's how he said it. <laughs> However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. I can't trust anybody, man. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? I'm going to pause real quick. If someone comes to your town and just married one of your people and gives you a riddle or you have to give him like a bunch of money if you don't figure it out, and the only person that knows the answer is Samson, so you ask his wife to find out the answer and tell you, and then you tell Samson, do you think he's an idiot? There's only two people that know the answer to this riddle, and one of them is Samson. I don't know what they thought was going to happen here. But uh, Samson said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, which calling his wife a small cow is um, probably not the best. 
you would not have found out my riddle. Samson was a little irritated. Uh, I said he's a man of extremes. Uh, Extreme pettiness is one of them. Uh, Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. There's that phrase again. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. Ouch. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, as one does. I wonder if he was going to tear it apart later. And said, I will go into my wife in her room, but her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, this time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He also has a flair for the dramatic. Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes. What? Okay. (laughs) How long did that take? Was it like a 30-minute? I don't know. Uh, So uh, he gathered uh, the 300 foxes um, uh, and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and groves. That's a very interesting method, but it worked. Verse 6, then the Philistines said, who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Notice the, the continual escalation from both sides. It's about to end up really bad for the Philistines. Verse 7, Samson said to them, since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. But after that, I'll quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Verse 9, then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lahai. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, no, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. There's that phrase again. So the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire. Literal translation would be that the, the, the ropes melted off of his wrists, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Jeez. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Samson was a poet. 
Verse 17, when he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramath Lehi. Uh, by the way, that means the, the high place of the jawbone. Then he became very thirsty and he called out to the Lord. Again, he's very dramatic. Listen to, the, listen to what he says. He says, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He literally killed a thousand people and he's being really dramatic about wanting some water. Yikes. But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so the water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it En-Hakor, which literally means the spring of him who cried out, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Congratulations, you've read two chapters of God's word. Woo! Sorry, that was a little louder than I expected. That's crazy. There's so many interesting things that happened uh, in, in those two chapters. And there's a whole third chapter to his story, but I'm already a little overwhelmed with trying to talk to you about two chapters, so we're just gonna, we're gonna not really get into the third one. I, also because in the third chapter, that's where so many people focus. That's where, where so many people spend their time is um, Samson having his, his hair cut and then losing his eyes and then, you know, busting out and taking down even more Philistines with him at the end of his life, which is a great story, but there's some really interesting things that happened in chapter 14 and 15. Samson's name means bright sun, S-U-N. And it reminds me of all the places in scripture, especially in the New Testament, where we're told to be the salt and light of the earth. Now, what kind of light are we supposed to be? Am I supposed to be a light that uh, is really pretty, like on a Christmas tree? A light that illuminates myself? Or am I supposed to be a light, um, well, none of you have ever been to a rave or a nightclub, so um, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't understand, but, <laughs> or maybe I'm... <laughs> Never mind, someone just admitted a, a something in church, so we're going to move on. I'm kidding. Uh, so, uh, or am I supposed to be a black light? How many of y'all know what a black light is? Probably most of you. What do black lights do? They don't shine and illuminate themselves, right? Black lights are actually relatively dark and pretty bad at illuminating a room. But what they do is cause other things to glow vividly bright. So maybe when we're being salt and light of the earth, we're supposed to be a black light. We're supposed to reveal the majesty of Christ, the power of God and the Holy Spirit that is inside of us. And that's, that's the kind of light I think Samson was being. We get a lot of depictions of Samson as uh, this big, ripped muscle, like tough guy. He looks like he was on the power team for TBN or something. Dude looks like he was, that was like a 20-year-old reference. Wow, um, I am getting old. He looks like a bodybuilder, right? In all of our depictions of Samson, he's got like, like muscles, like arms bigger around than my thighs. But, but here's the thing. We don't have any description of what Samson looks like. Every time he accomplished some massive physical feat, it's preceded by, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. If, if he was ripped in muscle and looked like a bodybuilder, no one would think of God when he did something, they would be like, oh, look at him. Of, well, of course he tore apart a lion. Look at his arms. 
And how do I know you don't need really big arms to tear up a lion? Because there is someone that we got a very good description of as far as how he looked, how big he was, or rather how scrawny and small he was. And that's <clears throat> King David, who did the exact same thing, fought off lions and bears and tigers, oh my, uh, as he looked after the flock of his father. He was the smallest of his brothers. He was the youngest. He was a scrawny little punk. And so when he defeated Goliath, everyone was like, praise God. There's no way he could have done that. Goliath is two and a half times his size. So if, if the spirit of the Lord is going to have to come mightily upon Samson in order uh, for, for things to get done, I, 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 I take um, uh, contention with this depiction of Samson as a, a burly, musk, muscled man. Today we're talking about devotion. We're talking about Samson's devotion to God and also his devotion to other things, um, which ultimately led to his temporary downfall. But he got the last laugh, you could say. And uh, uh, when, you're, when you're devoted to God, some things are going to happen. And that's where the points on your, your little scripture brochure came from. Yes, I did forget the name of the thing that we hand out in church. Sermon notes. Thank you, David. God bless you. <laughs> oh, man, I, I've never done this before. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know how to preach. Oh, God. Um, so Samson was devoted to God. So what's, what happens when you are devoted to God? If we go back to our text, we, we answered that question. The first four verses talk about how Samson found this Philistine woman attractive. His parents took issue with it for good reason. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should probably marry someone that agrees with that. That's over and over again in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, when people do the opposite of that, David, and, and other people, uh, bad things tend to follow, right? And so his parents were very like, um, could you not pick an Israelite or... Maybe not someone who's oppressing us currently. Uh, but they didn't recognize that God was the one who had opened Samson's eyes to this woman because God was ready to deliver Israel from its oppressors. And so the first point is others may not understand it. People sometimes won't get it when you're devoted to God. You'll look like a radical. Or as uh, DC Talk said in 1998, a Jesus freak. What will people, I know, that's, that song's going to be in my head the rest of the day now. Oh, man, my apologies. Uh, it's a really good song, at least um, it, it was 20-some years ago, and I still listen to it. What happens immediately after he shares with his parents that he finds this Philistine woman attractive? Well, he, he breaks their resolve, and they make their way down to Timnah and to talk to this Philistine woman and take her hand in marriage with Samson. And on the way, a lion comes down. At first, the lion seems like a threat. But really, it was an opportunity. Point number two is that uh, you'll be set up for success. And it won't always look like it. Because how does this story come to fruition? Uh, a chapter from now, God's going to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And where does that begin the riddle that required the dead lion 
to be said in the first place. The lion was necessary to Samson's story. It was never going to kill him. God sent it, and then God came upon Samson and killed it. He was setting Samson up for success. He was planting the first seeds of his deliverance of Israel. Uh, Similarly, how many of you know the story of Jesus Christ being betrayed by Judas? Judas is like a villain in most churches. I'm going to tell you right now, Judas is a hero, and he should be a hero in this series. Jesus had to die, guys. That was his, that was his purpose. He, had to, like, he was crucified. I mean, the crucifixion is awful, and it brings me to tears. And when I saw um, the Passion of the Christ when I was younger in the theater, I bawled at, at seeing what they were doing to Christ. But if that doesn't happen... I have no salvation. If that doesn't happen, I have no hope, no relationship with the Father. Jesus had to be crucified. That was God's plan from the beginning. He didn't come up with it halfway through the Old Testament. From day one, when he put us in the Garden of Eden, he knew that we were going to mess it up, and ultimately he would have to send his son as a sacrifice. Judas was, was necessary. If Judas hadn't betrayed Christ, Someone else would have had to. Jesus had to be betrayed so that he could be crucified, so that all of us could have eternal life. There's going to be moments in your life where Judases are going to come along, where lions are going to come along. And if you look at it and you don't let yourself be filled with paralyzing fear, but instead the spirit of the God mightily upon you, that threat will become an opportunity that is setting you up for success in the plans that God has for you in your life. I'm not going to beat a dead horse, which is one of those phrases that uh, doesn't make any sense to me and is really weird to say, but I'm not going to beat a dead horse. Let's move on. So some people might not understand it. You're going to be set up for success But verse number three, you will face insurmountable uh, opposition. Insurmountable. Why? For the same reason I don't believe that Samson had muscles all over his body that were super big and bulgy. Because if it's not insurmountable, we don't need God. And God will be glorified, guys. So, so uh, there's a, there was a song that came out when I was in college um, that I loved at first, and then when I really thought about it, I realized it's, it's actually not that biblical. And um, uh, I think the, uh, the hip-hop Christian band was called Group One Crew, um, and it was, uh, 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 and God won't give you more, more than you can take, and he might let you bend, but he won't let you break. And it sounded great, and it was encouraging, and I was going through a bit of a rough time with my mom's cancer, and so it kind of helped me uh, deal with, like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to break. God wouldn't let me do that. As I got older, I realized God will certainly let you break because he wants you to know that you cannot do it without him, and you're not supposed to try to do it without him. And when our circumstances start bending us, if we don't turn back to Christ, they will eventually break us so that we have no choice but to recognize our need of a Savior. And so if God doesn't give us more than we can take and he doesn't let us break, then why was Samson's hair cut? Why were his eyes gouged out? And why was he held in bondage at the end of chapter 16? 
I'll take your silence as acceptance of what I just said. Woohoo! Verse number four. You will, er, verse, oh my gosh. I do not love my notes so much that I think they're scripture. I apologize. Uh, you will never fight alone. You will never fight alone. Every single time Samson, ha- Samson had to fight, what did it start with? And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Now, y'all, I'm about to preach for a little bit. I'm really excited about this point. And you know why? Because the, 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 the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson. You know that, ne- that phrase never shows up in the New Testament? Ever. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because the spirit now indwells in each of us. We don't have to wait for it to come upon us. It's here already, guys. In, in the Old Testament, it, it wasn't. It had to come down on you again and again and again. And, and then when, when what you needed to do was done, it left. The Spirit didn't indwell you before Christ. Christ died so that the Spirit, one who is greater than me, will come and live inside of you. Hell yeah, yeah. Amen. That's exciting to me. The same spirit that that came upon Samson so he could kill a lion and deliver Israel from the Philistines already lives inside each and every one of you. That, man, that's just, oh. I want to say all of that again, but I don't like when pastors do that. (laughs) Y'all heard me the first time. Point number five. You are going to need to be intentional with your focus. And this point right here is actually where my sermon started in my head when I was planning for today. If you look at the associated verses of scripture that are on your sermon notes, again, thank you, David, for reminding me of the word sermon notes, you'll see that the, the, the two verses that I picked that, that illustrate this to me are when Samson kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone. And uh, what I'm about to say I don't believe is like a new word from God, I'm sure other people have said it. As a matter of fact, I know other people have. Samson did, in my opinion, the most impressive thing anyone in Scripture has ever done aside from Jesus. The bonds fall off. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily. He picks up the jawbone. He kills a thousand Philistines. That's not the impressive part. Do you know what it is? He took the jawbone after he was done and let it go. That's why the sermon is called The Power of Letting Go. Why? Because Samson knew the spirit wasn't in the jawbone. The spirit was in him. He knew that the jawbone was good. He knew that the the jawbone was given from God to allow him to accomplish this purpose of killing a thousand Philistines and begin the process of delivering Israel from its oppressors. And then he lets it go because its purpose was served. Friends, we're not good at that, especially in the church. Nah, we, we, uh, we find God at work in something. What do we do? We build a committee to figure out how that thing is working and what God's doing. We write up a research paper on it, we patent it, and then we sell it to other churches saying, look what God's doing here and look what he can do for you. We we would take that jawbone and we would figure out how to mass produce it in factories and sell it to other churches. This thing can kill a thousand Philistines. No, it can't. 
The jawbone is not that strong. It was because God came upon Samson and he used the jawbone to achieve a purpose and then he let it go. It doesn't mean the jawbone was bad. It doesn't mean that, that God didn't use the jawbone. There are things in your life that God has given you for a season and that season is over and you need to let it go. It doesn't negate the good that God did with it. It doesn't negate that it was God who told you to do it. That's not easy. It's not easy to let go. It's not easy to let go sometimes when it's a bad thing. It's even harder sometimes when it's a good thing. We feel like we give up. Or we feel like we're admitting defeat. But no, friends. Let me give you a practical example. Not a jawbone that killed a thousand Philistines. But kind of touching back on my sermon last week. What if God gives you a dream? What if you accomplish that dream? Imagine if you never listened to anything else God said. Does God only speak to us once? No. What if, what if, what if we've accomplished something, a word that he gave me 20 years ago, and what if I need to figure out what the next word is? When I was in, in high school and, and he called me to ministry, what if he calls me somewhere else, but I'm not listening? Because he, he, he called me to ministry, so, I mean, the next 80 years are ministry. But, but what if he calls me to ministry for five years, and then at the five-year mark, he wants me to, like, quit a church and go be a long-term missionary in Zimbabwe? But I'm not listening because, oh, he already called me to ministry, and, well, God spoke to me, so I'm done. It was a good thing, but if I'm never willing to let it go, and listen to the next thing that God has for me, I'm going to miss an opportunity to see God at work. If Samson had held on to the jawbone, I don't think it would have killed the Philistines it needed to kill when, you know, Judges 16 comes around and he's in a house full of thousands. That jawbone wouldn't have done him any good. So I want to challenge you this morning. Maybe, maybe this is not applicable to you in any way. Awesome but maybe it is. Maybe there's something in your life that you're holding on to that at one time was good. It was from God. And maybe it's time to let it go because God has something new for you. The reason that I think this is so important and the reason that this is where the, the genesis of this sermon came from is because in the church, we love tradition. We love tradition. There's nothing wrong with tradition. I love liturgy. I do. I love hymnals. I love stained glass windows. I love the fancy, like, robes that you get in certain denominations. I think they're cool. Uh, you know the, uh, the, the stereotypical, like, white collar? You know? That actually didn't originate in the Catholic Church. It actually originated in the Methodist denomination. Um, and also in, like, the 1800s. That's a very new development. Just fun fact for you. But if we're so in love with tradition instead of the God that gave us those traditions, then the first thing's not first anymore. Samson knew the power wasn't in the jawbone, and so he let it go. It served a purpose, and that purpose was done. All right, I'm going to move on. There's one point left. Point number six. I'm glad by the time I got to point six, I didn't call it a verse. 
Your success will be for the good of man and the glory of God. People ask me, how do I know that what I heard came from God? How do I discern something that I believe God is telling me to do and, and find out, is this actually from God? That can be hard, especially someone who's learning to hear from God. And, and, and I mean, you can grow up in the church for decades and still wonder if you've ever heard from God. And so I, I want to I give you an answer to that question. I'm going to tell you in the next two minutes a foolproof method to how you can know that you've heard from God. There's two parts. The first part is, does it line up with Scripture? Okay, God's not going to tell you to do something that there is no precedent for. The scripture is our, our um, testing strip by which we compare everything. If, if I preach you a sermon and it doesn't line up with God's word, first of all, you need to talk to me. And then second of all, you need to talk to someone else who is in authority over me. <laughs> because I'd be preaching uh, heresy, really, at that point. So if it lines up with scripture, meaning the principles are such that God has... Uh, affirmed those things in, in scripture, then, then that's a good first step, but it's not the only step. And why is it not the only step? Because we can do good things, but our heart could be in the wrong place. I love preaching. I love standing up here and talking about God's word. This is one of my favorite things to do. I'm in my element. I love doing this. And yet, if I do it, because I want people to come up to me after the service and tell me how awesome I am. Doing it for the wrong reason. And I am not glorifying God. So the second way in, of this two-step process of knowing whether you've heard from God, number one, does it line up with scripture? Number two, is it for the good of man and the glory of God? Because if it glorifies man, it's not from God. Because time and time and time again in scripture, God glorifies God, for the glory of God, God's glory. He doesn't say, for the glory of Paul. He doesn't say, for the glory of Samson. He doesn't say, for the glory of David. There's a reason all of these stories glorify God, and it's because they face these insurmountable odds. The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon them, and they are successful. And so when, when God, uh, you believe God has spoken to you, the two questions you need to ask are, does this line up with scripture and does this glorify me or does it glorify God? Does this glorify me or does it glorify God? The thing about Judges is uh, we don't know who wrote it. We don't actually know when it was written either. We have a a time period we think it might have been written in. That would be uh, about the, the 300 years um, starting with uh, like King, King uh, David and, and back about 300 years. Uh, we imagine that it was written at some point after kings uh, were in Israel because several times throughout the book of Judges it says, and at this time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why would he bother saying there was no king if he was writing in an era where there was yet to be a monarchy, right? So we kind of have an idea of when it was written, but we don't know for sure, and we don't know who wrote it. But I'm gonna tell you right now, we know who wrote it. 
that guy. Not the ceiling tile. Just past that. Not the power cable, uh, just past that actually. Um, not, not, not the AC that's on the roof either. I'm talking about God, right? We know God, it's all inspired by God. It's useful for teaching and correcting. The signature of my, uh, all my emails, if you've ever gotten an email from me, you'll see this and you might be like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, the signature of my emails, it, 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 my personal email, my work email, every email has always been, this book is alive. Because I want that reminder every single day. That God's word is living and active. And so this morning as, as I come to a close, I just want to reiterate something. It's okay to let go of good things that God has given you. Maybe there's something even better on the way, but you gotta let go of the jawbone first. I don't know. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning. Not everything is funny. (laughs) Not everything is rainbows and sunshine all the time. But God is faithful. The spirit that came upon Samson is in this room right now. He is in you. He's in Frank. He's in David and Michelle. He's in my wife, Hannah. He's in Greg, who's sitting in the front row. Thank you, Greg. It's good to see you. Lori. He's in the McClellans that aren't here this morning. He's in each of the people on the other side of that camera who are watching from home right now or at some point in the future. He's in Carl. He's in Gail. Pastor Scott, he's in Tem. I could do this for another 10 minutes and make sure I hit everybody, so please don't be offended if I didn't say your name. (laughs) But rest assured, I mean everyone. Rainy, Gary, Sonia. Guys, this stuff isn't just a story, it's real. The spirit of the Lord that that came upon Samson so he could kill a thousand Philistines. He is inside of you right now. What are you doing? Are Are you looking for opportunities to glorify God? I'm asking myself the same question. Am I looking for opportunities to glorify God? Man, I sure hope so. And I miss the mark. I make mistakes, I miss it, I hold on to things way too long. And and because of that, I, I miss words from God. You just get up and do it again and again and again because his spirit doesn't leave you. He is inside of you. Christ is inside of you too. Man, you basically got the Trinity. There's nothing that you can't do with Jesus. That's the last point I want to make this morning. You can do all things through Christ. And in John 15, you can do no things without Christ. God's everything, and he is inside of you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you that you have reminded us that you are inside of us. That your spirit indwells within our very body. 
Lord, I pray for, for each and every one of us here, Lord. If there is anything that we are holding on to, if we have a jawbone in our life that you are ready for us to let go of, help us to be like Samson. Help us to be willing to lay down a good thing so that we can receive a great thing. Lord, we trust you. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our future. We trust you with our plans. Lord, take us, use us, mold us. We are yours. I pray for, for every single person in this room, myself included. Lord, help us to be stewards of your grace to a broken and hurting world. Not a light that glorifies ourself, but one that reflects who you are and reveals the nature of your love to those around us. Lord, lastly, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here that your hope and your light and your life would be upon each and every one of them today and tomorrow and forever. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his own throne of mercy to the only wise God, our Savior, be all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go have a good day. God bless you.